I know what you're doing. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. How are you this afternoon, Meryl McNally? I'm excellent. How are you, Zach? I'm good. We're here to talk about two Meryl movies. This is... It's a twofer. It's a twofer. This is like the first time we've ever done this, maybe. I mean, I guess we did a double feature back then, but these those were movies that she was in like one scene each in. Yeah. I think this is the one and only time we'll do like major feature films starring Meryl Streep together. Yeah. Just because they came out a day apart, we thought that was pretty interesting and they make an interesting comparison. They really do actually. They're, and they're both, you know, tangentially related in terms of Oscars and award stuff and all, all of that stuff. So yeah, yeah. We, may as, we may as well do these both together. But before we even dive in, you told me before we started recording, but uh, what have you been watching recently? I'm curious to hear about the one you mentioned. <laughs> okay, so I watched Wild Mountain Time, which I think we've brought up before in a previous episode, because uh, I'm very, I was very excited for it because it's John Patrick Shanley who wrote uh, Doubt and Moonstruck, the great playwright. And before I tell you what I think about this movie, everyone should not be misled by me and they should know that this movie was basically panned. <laughs> it has gotten uh, mediocre reviews at best. Most people are extraordinarily confused by it. The biggest bone people are picking is the inconsistent Irish accents. Yep. And then it's just general absurdity. Sure. Um, but I have to tell you that I unabashedly 100% adore this movie. <laughs> I do. It's not perfect by any means. And some of the criticisms are totally valid. But I just, I'm sorry. I love me some John Patrick Shanley. Sure. It is the quirkiest, you know, he writes sort of high poetry dialogue that would never come out of a human being's mouth. And as long as the actors commit to the world, it works for me. And they all do. Sure. 100%. So it's a little, it's a little wobbly on plot. And uh, Emily Blunt's character isn't developed quite enough. And there's some, there's definitely some funky things going on. But at the end of the day, this movie is fantastic. <laughs> well, you may be the first to sell this movie in such a way. I'm the first. And I don't want to lead people astray because it is bonkers. Yeah. I, am I mean, curious. the lead has a secret that he carries with him the whole film. And she okay. finally, can, it's Jamie Dornan. She finally convinces him to tell her what he's been like carrying around. And this secret is the most bonkers. I mean, the sentence he utters... I laughed so hard. I and but people who people who watched it and reviewed it, the critics who reviewed it, they didn't find it funny or charming the way I did. They just thought it was bonkers weird. So mm. it may just be my brand of humor. It is like an Irish moonstruck. Okay. It has that same kind of high dialogue, even more so because he's sort of leaning into that Irish poetry. Yeah, it's really sweet. It's just really sweet. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, you know, I've been thinking since you said it, the, the thing that you said that's sticking out is the people speak the way, you know, people don't speak in real life. Now, ordinarily, that's interesting and problematic at the same time. But when you're one of your leads is Christopher Walken, it's got to be just insane. Yeah, you know, I'm guessing that they all just really wanted to work with John Patrick Shanley. Mm -hmm. And it was useful to have names, but Christopher Walken is miscast and he's because he, he plays a, he plays an aging farm owner whose remaining son runs the farm for him. Jamie Dornan runs the farm for him. And, you know, his son's a little weird and he's never gotten married and he's kind of off in his own little world. And Christopher Walken decides he can't pass the farm to, to Jamie Dornan. It's got to go to his brother's son in America, who's John Hamm. And um, that plot point gets resolved like halfway through and turns out was a non-issue. But Christopher Walken is Christopher Walken. He's iconic. And his Irish accent was a little wobbly. He gives a beautiful performance. Like he had me, he had me crying. Really? It was very good. Yeah. But just miscast. Sure. Um, and we're, we're going to talk about miscasting for our Meryl Streep movies today too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think he was probably a little bit of a distraction. The other thing is Emily Blunt is so lovely in it as well, but she's, uh, she's Emily Blunt and she's, a movie star and I don't believe that she's a farmer sure and part of that was costuming and makeup you know like she was just too done up to be an Irish farmer yeah um but she's so good in it as well like she's super charming I just think people probably had a hard time buying into the world sure because of who, who was in it well um, I haven't read all that much about it but the one review that I read said that her accent wasn't quite as offensive as uh deborah messings when she originally played the part on broadway <laughs> i actually i have a pretty sensitive ear to accents um christopher walkins is not consistent hers was really okay it i was. mean she's a trained actress so i would assume she's probably she is and she's and she's British, not that that necessarily makes a difference, but I do think it's a step closer to Irish than, say, an American yeah. trying trying to do it. Jamie Dornan is, of course, Irish, so his accent is fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a little inconsistent because there were some American actors cast in smaller roles who weren't necessarily consistent, and whatever region they're in, the accent's pretty thick. John Hamm is also miscast. He plays an American. He's not donning an Irish accent, but he... He, he doesn't quite work in his part either. I'm really selling it. Yeah. But it I, is so quirky and just, it made me laugh out loud several times. Good. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the movie can't be all bad. I mean, it was at one point, uh, you know, one of the contenders they thought for awards and everything. I don't think it's probably in that category at this point, but you know, the, you, you never know. It's, I, I saw an interview recently with Saoirse Ronan, who is also Irish and they were asking her, as you know, she's done so many different accents at this point. And they said, what's the highest, hardest accent? And she said, Irish there. It, it is a very hard because it's so specific. Each different region has very specific, you know? Yeah. So yeah, you gotta be good. Yeah. Kind of broad Irish accents sometimes work but i think i'm a sucker for like really really offbeat romances and moonstruck is a good example mm -hmm. um 
Secretary is another example with Maggie Gyllenhaal. Mm -hmm. Like the, these movies, I could like live on them. Sure. Um, and this fits in that category. It's, okay. it's not as seamless as Moonstruck, but it has so much heart. It's really sweet. It's a really sweet ending too. So nice. I would recommend it. Okay. Well, anything else you wanted to mention? Oh, you know what? The only other thing I've watched because I was, I was drowning in law school finals for like from Thanksgiving to the 11th that like, I didn't watch much of anything, but I did watch, they finally released the great British baking show holiday edition with the cast mm -hmm. of Dairy Girls. And if you haven't seen Dairy Girls on Netflix, I highly recommend it. And also another Irish. <laughs> It is, it is the funniest. I, I would say it's up there with Schitt's Creek. It's so good. And um, the cast of Dairy Girls went on to the Great British Baking Show and did the camp competition. And it's, it's Peter Pan's funny. Nice. I have not, I, I think I saw a preview for that, but I have not seen that. So that's good to know. I'm going to look these things up here. Especially if you're our age and you, um, you know, you were in high school in the nineties. It's glorious. Cause I, I mean, it's in, it's in, it's in dairy, um, in the nineties when the IRA activity was, was pretty bad. And so they're living through that experience. It's, it's a half hour comedy for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but like just the nineties existence is so universal. Yeah. <laughs> You'll feel it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. What have you been watching? Um, I have seen, I would say, three and a half things that uh, I saw since we spoke last that are kind of in the awards contention, so, so I thought I would mention them. I have watched uh, Hillbilly Elegy. I watched uh, Mank. I watched Da Five Bloods. I finally watched that. And oh my gosh, you've seen so many good ones that I have not seen. Do tell. Well, and the first half of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is all I need to is see. Is it out? It's out. Yeah, it came out. Yeah, it came out yesterday, and it uh, seeing the first ten minutes of it is all you need to say the awards for best actor and actress this year are Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. They're incredible in this film. It's unbelievable. I'm so excited! I'm so excited to watch that. Yeah. So I haven't seen the whole thing. I've only seen halfway through that one. So I'll maybe not talk about that one except to say it's so far unbelievable and go watch it. Um, Hillbilly Elegy was interesting. I have a lot of the same issues that everybody kind of did. Um, there are things that really work about it. There are things that really don't work about it. Um, I think Glenn Close is, is quite, I, actually the performances in general, I think are quite good. Um, it's just a matter of, we talked about this last time, I think of whether or not this is exploitive and whether or not it's uh, something that Amy Adams and Glenn Close and, you know, these people, if, if it's really a world that they should be speaking for. And I think they've really felt the blowback from people, you know, like they've each kind of had to address it because it's been loud enough, but good performances. Amy Adams is unfortunately kind of not given much to do except like kind of rage and scream and mm. those performances where, you know, it's, it's just so kind of out of control all the time. And it's, it's just such an unlikable character for the most part that you're, I don't know, I didn't find myself rooting for her that much. I find myself rooting for the people around her to kind of escape her, um, 
which is maybe not what was intended by the film. I have a feeling that's kind of the exact opposite of what I was supposed to feel. So, um, but good performances. Um, Mank I thought was interesting too. It's another one that I thought was uh, great performances. Uh, you know, David Fincher is so meticulous, unbelievably meticulous. Yeah. They, you know, would film some of these scenes a hundred times, literally a hundred times or more. He would just get fixated on, you know, like the shadow in a certain, you know, like part of this part of the shot. Like he's so over the top in ways that like Kubrick was like that, they say too, you know. Um, it's in black and white and it's very slow and feels very old fashioned. Great performances. Gary Oldman, I think, will for sure get a nomination. Uh, Amanda Seyfried is maybe even the... The, the kind of maybe best option for supporting actress. She's um, good. Although I was surprised, I expected that role to be a little bigger than it is actually, and maybe have a scene that was really, you know, big. It's another one of those that there's no like, oh, this is the scene that's going to get her her Oscar or there's, you know, like she's very good consistently throughout it, but it's not yeah. one, of the, one of those movies. I, I definitely recommend that one. Um, you know, actually, I mean, I would not recommend Hillbilly Elegy. I think, you know, kind of your your instinct, whether or not you want to watch this movie or not, is probably dead on for Hillbilly yeah. <laughs> You know if it's for you or if it's not. Yeah. Um, the Five Bloods was so intense. Have you watched that one? Haven't. Honestly, out of all of these, that one to me was maybe the most interesting because first of all, it's really long. It's like two and a half, maybe even longer than that. It's a, it's a war movie, basically. Um, it's about these four men who go back to Vietnam. Uh, they were among the many African-American men who, who served and were very underappreciated and were treated, you know, very less than, you know, even as they're <laughs> risking their lives for their country. And uh, it's just such a confusing movie. The funny thing is, is I was about halfway, well, like half or half hour to an hour in. And I was thinking, man, this is so good. This is just one of Spike Lee's best movies. And then something happened that made me look it up on IMDb. I had some sort of question. I don't remember what it was if I was trying to figure out like who an actor was or something in the movie. And then I made the mistake of like, I was surprised at how like middle of the road the rating was. And so I started looking at people's reviews, which is never a good thing to do if you're trying to form your own opinion. Yeah. But it really did highlight how problematic so many elements of this movie are. There, mm. It's towering, towering performances. Delroy Lindo in this movie is so, so good. He is it's just, he is also a completely kind of out of his mind, PTSD, super paranoid, super uh, kind of hard to watch, not very likable person. And yet there's something so intense about his performance. It's so magnetic. And like, you can't take your eyes off of him. Wow. It's so, it's, it's really powerful. And so are the other people around him, I mean, universally. Um, Chadwick Boseman also has a supporting role in this movie and people are kind of expecting at this point that he might get nominated in supporting actor as well. I have to say I would be a little surprised because it's a tiny role. And I mean like yeah. two tiny. It is a oh, wow. tiny role. And uh, he's good, but he, it's one of those things where his picture is shown as often as he's like speaking. And it just, I'm not sure that um, I get it. And especially after seeing Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I get how beloved he is and, you know, what a year. It's, it's yeah. so sad to 
lost him this year because this was probably his artistic high point this year. Yeah, yeah I, it, it'll be interesting to see if he's nominated yeah. in supporting as well for this. But so I would give all three thumbs up. It's certainly Ma Rainey as well, um, but it's just very different movies. Holy cow. Yeah, very. So well, I'm excited to see all of them. I need to, I have, a, I have a short window in January. I need to start watching. Yeah. Are you going to watch Hillbilly Elegy, do you think, or are you going to skip it? I'm probably going to skip that one. There's nothing about that movie that looks appealing to me. Yeah. I I kind of wonder. Yeah. It's it's just, it's complicated. We could fill a podcast episode pretty easily talking about that. So we will move on. So um, I do have, as long as we're in the Oscars stuff, I have this long list. I realize it's probably too much to talk about, but I went on, um, Gold Derby had this, which is a website that kind of predicts nominations. And they have this article today saying Meryl Streep's odds for the prom increasing. They do like these, you know, once a week or so kind of testing of the waters of whose who's stock is on the rise, whose stock is, you know, falling. And, and Meryl Streep is kind of getting higher and higher possibly for the prom. They still don't know that she's going to make it in there, but they think that it's, there's been very up reviews there's been very down reviews uh although the down reviews are not really about her for the most part right so uh i did kind of take they have 24 experts on their site who predict these things and i went through and kind of did all of the categories i'll maybe run quickly um in the lead actress so again there are 24 experts there are 23 who say francis mcdormand and viola davis are you know gonna get at least a nomination uh, next up is Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman at 19. Then Carrie Mulligan, who's kind of creeped up for Promising Young Woman. She's now in the four spot at, with 12. So excited for that movie. I am too. I took your advice and I watched that trailer. It is unbelievable. It's yeah. so Right? And and from what I've heard, like the, the, the reviews I've read of the people who have screened it say it's unbelievable. Yeah. Apparently a fight broke out in the theater at Sundance. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. And I'm curious if Vanessa um, Kirby's chances are going to be hurt by the uh, Shia LaBeouf news. Are, uh, what is their connection? Oh, F- he's in the film. Oh, he is? He plays her spouse. Yeah. And for those of you who have not read, although I'm sure everybody has, that FKA Twigs filed a lawsuit against him for many abuses. Well, and, and several I don't... women have come out of the woodwork. Thank exactly. God. I don't think that's the first time we've heard that about him. I've I've got always kind of had a weird vibe with him. He's just he seems yeah. I mean, he's troubled for sure. Yeah. I I have not um I mean those things go hand in hand, so it shouldn't be surprising. I haven't heard any I I haven't heard any rumblings about him being specifically abusive to women. It's not surprising sure. at all. I am extraordinarily surprised it's taken this long to come out. Right. Because he's been a problem for a while. Right. And Me Too happened a while ago. So I'm, I was a little bit surprised on the timing, but glad. I I just, my, I mean, I don't, what do I know? But I feel like it's just more a vibe thing with anything else, but he's just that kind of guy who he's just trying to push things in a weird way. So anyway, uh, in the number five spot is Sophia Loren still for a movie called Life Ahead, which is on Netflix that I've been meaning to get to. 
Um, on the outside looking in with seven votes apiece are Andre Day for United States versus Billie Holiday and Kate Winslet for Ammonite. Uh, a little bit further down with three votes each are Merrill for the prom, Michelle Pfeiffer for French Exit, which surprises me that, that's, that she's kind of fallen so far. Um, Nicole Bahari for a movie called Miss Juneteenth and Sydney Flanagan for a movie called Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always. In the, with two votes apiece are Elizabeth Moss for Shirley and Zendaya for Malcolm and Marie and one vote for Amy Adams for Hillbilly Elegy. So there are 14 people who are kind of considered to be kind of in the running. Um, the lead actor category is the most concise in, in both ways. There's only nine possibilities listed mm -hmm. and the, it's, it's clear who the top five are because there's yeah. a steep, steep drop from five to six. It's the only category where there are uh, universal, like unanimous decisions. And there are two of them, Chadwick Boseman and Anthony Hopkins for The Father each got all 24 votes. Uh, Delroy Lindo for Defy Bloods got 21. Gary Oldman for Mank got 19. And Riz Ahmed for a movie called cool. Sound of Metal. I have heard that that is a really extraordinary like, film. I've heard it's a, unbelievable and it's a great performance too. Yeah, I'd like yeah. to see it. That's on Amazon Prime, I believe. Oh, great. So that one has 18, uh, 18 out of 24 votes. It's a steep drop from there to seven, which is the next uh, vote, which is Stephen Ewan for Minari. And then Kingsley Benadir for One Night in Miami has four. Tom Hanks for News of the World at two. And Colin Firth for Supernova got one. So I don't know if this is even interesting for people, but I'm going to do the supporting for one. Real okay. Uh, supporting actress, uh, also fairly concise, and this one has connections to our films today too. Um, Amanda Seyfried and Olivia Coleman each have 23 uh, votes. Yu, Yu Young Yin, I'm sure I'm saying that right, and I apologize, from Minari has 20. Uh, Ellen Burstyn for Pieces of a Woman at 19, and then Glenn Close has 11 for Hillbilly Elegy. Um, right behind her is Marie Bakalova for Borat at nine. We talked about that last time. Oh, yeah. How that would be if, if Borat of all things was nominated. Right. Um, Helena Zengel, who is the young woman in News of the World, has six. Sarah Ronan has four for Ammonite, which is surprising that that's so low too. Yeah, that surprises me. She is like really quite, you know, she's like the Academy darling. You know, she's got what, yeah. four or five already and she's young. Um, and then Nicole Kidman for The Prom has two votes and Candace Bergen also has two votes for Let Them All Talk. <laughs> I'm very excited about that. Um, I cannot wait to talk about Candace Bergen. I'm uh, like chomping at the bit. I'm ready to go whenever you're ready. <laughs> she, I know, I, real quick. Uh, the only other one to get a vote was Lily Collins for Mank got one vote as well. Uh, the supporting actor, I, I'm just going to race through these because this one is the most like kind of all over the place category. There's a lot of, there are 17 f people, 17 people who might be nominated. Leslie Odom Jr. seems to be the only sure thing. Um, and I would also, I haven't seen this movie, One Night in Miami, that he's apparently going to be nominated for. It's directed by Regina King. Oh, right. And uh, it seems like they should just give him the award already too, from, from the sounds of it, because <laughs> it's just one of those. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, Mark Rylance, and Yahya Abdul-Mateen are up there, all three of them, for The Trial of the Chicago Seven, and uh, Bill Murray for uh, a movie called On the Rocks. 
Uh, right behind them are Stanley Tucci for Supernova and David Strathairn for Nomadland at eight apiece. Paul Rocky from Sound of Metal at seven. Chadwick Boseman uh, with six. And then real quickly, Daniel Kaluuya with five. Frank Langella with four. And a bunch of people with one. Lance Henriksen, Eddie, Red Eddie Redmayne, Lakeith Stanfield, Coleman Domingo, Aldous Hodge, and Charles Dance, who we talked about last time with, with our friend Aaron. Yeah. So I don't think Charles Dance will be nominated. It's not a big enough role. No, I don't think so either. Yeah. That's interesting to hear because it, it puts some movies on my radar that I actually have, you know, forgotten existed or have not heard of that I need to watch. And I, I forget, you know, this year is such a blur. Time is running together. I'm like, the Oscars are so far away. Why are we talking about this? But they're really not. They're or, not, but they're, they're, they're later this year, aren't they? I think it's not. Until, I think it's not until April this year. Oh, they bumped it further back, but it's still the qualifying period is still the end of the year, right? Yeah, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, but I think, yeah, I think the qualifying period is the end of the year for sure. But I kind of wonder if the hope isn't that by that point, they could maybe do it in person. You know, it depends on how quick this vaccine is out. Who knows? I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold our breath for it, but you know, it could happen, I suppose. I miss going to the theater, guys. <laughs> I do too. One other observation, quick observation after all of that is this has the possibility to be quite a diverse year in terms of like very diverse, which I think is a good thing. And I think there is a possibility anyway, that at least three out of the four will probably not be white, you know, white Uh, men. Or I, I really think there's a pretty strong chance right now that yeah. I, I, I don't know if Amanda Seyfried or Olivia Coleman is maybe going to win supporting actress. Um, that category is maybe a little bit underrepresented, but everywhere else, I think the, the front runners right now are not white people. So, and yeah. same for Chloe Z- Zhao, I think is her name for uh-huh. land. I think that movie is kind of perceived right now to be the front runner for best picture and best director too. So not only would it be, a person of color, but it would be a woman of color, which would be pretty amazing. That'd be amazing. Yeah. One last thing before we get into these movies. Um, we talked about this a little bit. There is a tiny, tiny bit of Meryl news, which I think will be news oh, yeah. to you as well. Uh, she, she has done a few talk shows as part of promotion for both of these movies. And uh, I think it was when she was on Colbert, she was talking about she has filmed a couple of scenes already for uh, the movie that she's making with Adam McKay. I cannot remember what it's called, so I'm going to look it up here real quick. But she is playing the president of the United States, we learned. It's about time. I know. I was just thinking she's not done that before. The movie is called Don't Look Up. It's the Adam McKay comedy. A pair of astronomers try to warn everyone on Earth that a giant meteorite will destroy the planet in six months. It's currently filming in Boston. This is the one that she's doing with Leonardo DiCaprio, Timothy Chalamet, Chris Evans, Jennifer Lawrence, Kate Blanchett, Jonah Hill, Ron Perlman, Matthew Perry, Ariana Grande, Tyler Perry. It's just, it goes it's on and on. crazy cast. I could keep going, actually. Wow. Uh, but she talked about, she hadn't filmed anything in a while, partly because of COVID, but she said that her first scene on this movie uh, was addressing the stadium was giving the speech at a stadium, you know, where she was like up on the jumbotron and saying that they, they switched the pages on her. She had like memorized everything, but then like day of they switched some of the writing and she didn't have time to memorize everything. And so she was talking about how brutal it was to like 
not only be back, like she couldn't ease in. They said, you know, like the first day is usually like, you know, B-roll of you getting out of a car or you, you know, like sitting down and saying, how can I help you or something kind of generic. Right. And she had this big speech that she had to deliver in front of all these extras. And then they changed it on her. And she said that she really screwed it up and really had a hard time with it. And uh, she thought all these poor extras who were there were probably like, this is the greatest actress. You know? <laughs> oh, mortifying. Yeah. So, but it sounds like uh, her scenes, she mentioned uh, being in scenes with Jonah Hill because she said that when she, when she was struggling, he just kind of stepped up and started improvising to try to cover for her, uh, which is great. So, uh, you know, I don't know how, if they'll always be together, but I like that combination, I have to say. Yeah, me too. Yeah. He's fun. He's funny. I like him. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we know about that movie. She's playing the president and there's an enormous cast and it sounds like they're on track at least so far. So, uh, you know, we'll probably get at least one Meryl movie next year. Yeah. Right. Just cranking them out. Yeah. Crazy. So should we finally talk about these movies? I think we should. Which should we talk about first? The you pick. I think we start with the prom. Okay. Yeah. And then we'll move to let him talk. I think we'll have more to say about let him talk. Probably. I think so. All right. You want to give a synopsis on the prom before we dive in? Sure. The Prom is currently on Netflix for anyone who wants to watch it. It is a Ryan Murphy-helmed adaptation of a Broadway musical that premiered on Broadway in 2018. It premiered on stage in 2016, so it's been around for a while and has made its way through the various channels. The basic premise is that a young girl in Indiana um, is gay and would like to... um, go to prom with her girlfriend and the PTA decides that they do not want to have an inclusive prom and a couple of self-involved Broadway stars who have had bad reviews catch wind of what's going on in Indiana and decide to go to Indiana to uh, publicly advocate for this high school student in order to improve their image. And so they go and insert themselves in Indiana and hijinks ensue and there's lots of musical numbers. Meryl Streep plays one of those Broadway stars, James Corden plays the other, and they are accompanied to Indiana by a career chorus girl played by Nicole Kidman and an out of work Juilliard grad played by Andrew Mannels. Nice. Yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty thorough and well, yes, very nice. What, give me your like initial reaction. How did you like this one? So I saw the show on Broadway mm-hmm. in 2018 and it's, uh, it's um, it was choreographed and directed by Casey Nicola who did Book of Mormon, um, Mean Girls, very talented. It was a very fun, polished, forgettable musical. Mm-hmm with that that would definitely make you laugh super sweet story if not a little bit oversimplified that they improved the music like the music is still the same but the arrangements that they did there was something about the translation to film that made the music more memorable for me Mm -hmm. um i think the overall problem with the story is it's an it's just so it's so oversimplified. It's almost like that old school save the theater kind of trope. 
Um, This like, you know, bumbling idiot conservatives in Indiana versus, um, you know, totally accepting yet (laughs) self-involved performers from, it just feels a little funky now. It doesn't quite work. If you can suspend your disbelief and just allow yourself to have some fun while you watch this movie, it's pretty damn fun. Yeah. <laughs> but you really do have to like, let go of what you know about reality. Yeah. Totally. What did you think? Well, I'm trying to avoid saying the thing I always say, which is that, you know, musical theater is not my primary love. Well, and this is so, it's like, it's, it's much like the poster for the movie. It's like musical theater in neon. Yeah. It's like the most musical theatery you can get is this yep. show. Yeah. Yes. This is, it's funny too, because all I could think of, uh, you know, like it, if I look at the, the poster before having seen it, my first thought is like, oh, every high school is going to do this play or this musical when it's available. It's like that, you know, like a let's put on a show kind of energy to yeah. it, which is what you were saying. I don't know. There are things that I really liked about it. Again, there are some great performances in this. Uh, and then there's one really, really troublesome performance that is so distracting. And I think part of it too is it, we're, I'm talking about James Corden and uh, I'm not the first one to bring this up by any stretch. This is an ongoing thing, but you know, it, it part of it is that he is like the first thing that you see in this basically it's like that first musical number is Meryl and him and it, it just like hits you with this and it's like ooh, this is like I, it's it's such a stale trope and it feels like it's such it sets you up for disappointment in that way it sets you up for is this really what we're doing here is this and it luckily I do think the movie rebounds quite a bit yeah um, but I, I do think like right off the bat, it kind of had, it had a sour taste in my mouth because of that. It was just such a rough stereotypical performance, you know? I think it's troubling because that's, that's how it's written. Sure. And also like Brooks Eschmankis did it on Broadway. He was brilliant. He was even, he was even more over the top. He was so much fun to watch on stage. You could tell that James Corden, like James Corden was a little bit stuck between a rock and a hard place because you could tell he toned it down quite, quite a bit because I, I just don't think a straight man can do that without seriously offending people. Right. And in fact, he did anyway. <laughs> he right. offended people. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's just tough. He was, he was, I I get the impression he's lovely. I think he was terribly miscast and put in a tough spot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's unfortunate. I agree. It's distracting. It's, that's all it is. Yeah, it's not, I don't have anything against James Corden. I actually have to say too, Meryl was on his show and it was such a great interview. Like they seem to have such a good rapport. I do, I'm not, because I don't have cable, I'm not a regular watcher of any late night shows. Um, but from what I've seen of him, I like him as a, you know, as a performer, as a host, it's not really against him. It's just sort of like the, the tweets, I read an article about it where basically everybody was saying, uh, was Nathan Lane not available because this is a Nathan Lane impression or Billy Porter, or, uh, I can't remember his name, but the guy who played Titus on unbelievable Kim, uh, unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Actually, yeah. I think he's Titus, right? He's Titus, Titus Burgess. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, like one of those three would have been a perfect choice, probably. Um, but at the same time, uh, the, the rest of the film, I think, I, I don't know, there's, there's, it's kind of a shallow script and it's kind of a shallow, uh, it's kind of a shallow movie in some ways. We never really, I don't feel like with the exception of uh, the, the main young woman, I, I'm not sure we ever really get to know much about any of these characters. It's one of those that it kind of, tries really hard to be an ensemble musical and by doing that you kind of lose any attachment to any specific characters in a way yeah I think I don't think James Corden was the only miscasting that went on <laughs> um and I do think there's something about the story when you have Broadway stars who think they're more important than they are because nobody in the rest of the world knows who they are right. show up to advocate there's something funny in that but when it's when it's Nicole Kidman, Meryl Streep, James Corden and Andrew Reynolds which almost everybody knows it it it's like it, it makes you have to suspend your disbelief even more mm -hmm than you already do with the story as it exists. And also, um, listen, everybody knows, I ain't doing a Meryl, Meryl Streep podcast for nothing. I love the woman, she's miscast in this role and she does it beautifully and she's really great, but it that she's miscast. Really? <laughs> and so is James Gordon. <laughs> yeah, they are. She, um, and I, I don't know, like James Corden is too young and Meryl Streep is too old and they needed to be paired better and it needed to work. And also uh, Keegan-Michael Key is also miscast because there's a romance going on between Keegan-Michael Key and Meryl Streep, or at least there should be. And that's like nothing but awkward. <laughs> I like I can't like I had I had a hard time I had a hard time with the whole thing I was like I'm not sure I'm supposed to I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be buying into here <laughs> I actually kind of like I think Nicole Kidman is miscast <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because I love her to pieces and I think she's extraordinarily talented and again she did such everybody did a great job but like I don't buy that Nicole Kidman is a career chorus girl She's Nicole freaking Kidman. <laughs> I get that. I get that more so than the others. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think it is because the story is so shallow and surface level that like there's no room for them to do what they do best. Right. There's no room for Nicole Kidman to suspend my disbelief because she doesn't have the time. Like, yeah. there's no there's no room within the character to do it and so I have to buy them at face value and I didn't buy a single one of them at face value yeah wow. interesting yeah. I it felt to me like I actually really kind of liked the dynamic between Meryl and Keegan-Michael Key to tell you the truth yeah I just it was so unexpected and it was so I don't know I guess I didn't think too much of it because it just felt like at this point, I'm buying everything else. What's not to buy about That's this? That's true. You make a good point. And I am, my entire perspective is is colored by the fact that I saw the Broadway show sure. with Beth Lavelle, who is just, I mean, she's epic. And Brooks Ashmakis was amazing. Like the two of them together were so good. You know, they didn't carry over to the film. And I, 
think that was hard for the Broadway community. Actually, I wanted to talk about that because I think one of the things that you said, uh, first of all, Meryl has been pretty good about talking about Beth LaBelle and how great she was when she she saw this. Um, But I I didn't know this about the show and somebody put it in the trivia part of IMDb uh, that one of the points of the show when it was on Broadway was that it took a bunch of actors who had kind of spent their entire careers in supporting roles and kind of gave them the leads. And that was one of the things about this musical. And then when they did the film adaptation, we got Meryl Streep and Nicole Kidman and big names and something about that maybe not sitting right. Yeah, it doesn't sit right. And I think they all auditioned for the film and not a single one of them was carried over. It was just rough. Uh, Yeah, it's too bad. And, um, and I do get it. Like at, at, at some point you have to acknowledge that you're selling a film. You have to get people watching the film. I, yeah. And who's going to watch that if it doesn't have Meryl Streep and Nicole Kidman in it. Right. So yeah. I do, I do get it. And yeah. I, it's hard because seriously, Meryl Streep is phenomenal. She's so good. Her voice has never sounded better. Mm, she really does sound good. Yeah. She, kicks ass she's so good i just i i don't think i can get past if not if not if not beth then somebody beth-esque which meryl streep is not and i'm i i'm i'm having trouble with that i can't get quite i can't get past it so what because i haven't seen beth lavelle i don't think i've ever seen her in anything but specifically in this what what qualities does she have different from from meryl would you say say i'm not sure you'd want to translate this to film anyway but beth is beth lavelle is so i mean she's a quintessential stage performer i'm i mean she is a firecracker on stage her voice is huge she has so much presence and she just she's super brassy and i just i just believe i just believed it Right, okay. that she was, um, that she was a, a Broadway star, and she thought everybody knew who she was. Okay, I'm getting, nobody... I'm getting Patty Lapone vibes. Um, no, definitely. Well, I mean, yeah, she captures the diva thing in the show, but she doesn't quite have. She doesn't have. She doesn't have the Patty Lapone vibe. Okay. It's more like the BB Newworth vibe. Oh, okay. Yeah, like I am here. Interesting. Okay. And um, tons of energy. Tons okay. of energy. Interesting. Okay. That's helpful. BB New Earth is a good uh, reference point. Yeah. 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 She reminds me uh, quite a bit about of her. Okay. Um, but, yeah. yeah. You know, the other thing that I felt with this one in regards to, to Nicole Kidman, for me, uh, you know, I've been saying on this podcast for a while now, Nicole Kidman, to, to my mind, for as giant a star as she is, is also insanely undervalued uh like she does so much work uh but everything that she puts out especially the last couple of years like she's been in a lot of stuff last year she was in bombshell she should have been nominated for that the year before that she was in boy race she should have been nominated for that like she keeps putting out these really over or these really underseen undervalued performances and i think part of it is because she is a giant star everybody in the world knows who nicole kidman is I think part of it is the fact that she's really pumping out a lot of work. She's a lot in of work. four or five movies every year, which is a lot. Plus a plus a TV series or two. You know, like yeah. this last 
she did the undoing and big little lies season two you know like she's yeah. in a lot of stuff but um i was a little surprised that her role was really as small as it is and it felt like yeah. you know there were it seemed like the composer of this who i know nothing about was like okay i need to give this character their number and then i need to give this character their number and this character their number and I think it's too much. I think there are too many people involved in a way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I think that I, I think that's how it was written. It's very similar in the stage show too. Like they sort of each have, they each have their number. I think the fun the the fun thing about um, her character um, in the Broadway show is that it is actually played by a career chorus right. dancer. <laughs> so right. there was such legitimate and there was so there was so much support for her in that role because of that um but yes yeah, so it was interesting I know I think Nicole Kidman filmed this after doing the undoing she took this on because it was so fun yeah. <laughs> and an opportunity to work with great people and just have some fun and and it is a it is a much smaller role than she normally has yeah, agreed. And I thought, you know, everybody has their number. And for most of them, it's a big, very, you know, like kind of over the top number. Hers is too, but hers is, I think, if I remember the title correct, Zaz is her Zaz. It's a very Chicago-esque kind of like dance yeah. number, as much as it is a vocal number. And, you know, it's great dancing that she does. That one is really kind of a duet with her and Emma, uh, Joellen Pellman's character. And so, I don't know, it just felt like, when, when is Nicole Kidman gonna get her moment? I kept thinking throughout this whole thing. You know, everybody else kind of got theirs and hers felt a little bit smaller than everybody else's. And I, I don't know how they got her to do it. Uh, speaking of Emma, she's kind of the lead in this. And I thought Joe Ellen Pellman was fantastic. It's phenomenal. She was definitely the highlight. Yep. Just so charming and beautiful voice and killed it, totally yep. killed it. She yeah. was great. Uh, same for Ariana DeBose, I think yep. that's how you say. Uh, who I think is also going to be in the next West Side Story, right? She's Anita in the upcoming West Side, Steven Spielberg. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, she's kind of having a, quite a year with musicals. Uh, I, I had missed the fact that Tracy Ullman is in this. I know. She just shows up. That's amazing. She plays amazing. James Corden's mother. To tell you the truth, I didn't recognize her. I, I was like, oh, who is that? And then as soon as she started speaking, I knew exactly who she was. But uh, yeah, they kind of aged her up. And Mary Kay Place was a nice surprise too, as uh, Emma's grandmother. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, I don't know. What did you think of Kerry Washington in this, as long as we're talking about basically everybody in here? Uh, also, also miscast. <laughs> I mean, also, she's great. That's the thing is like, I feel, I feel almost guilty continually saying that because they each, I mean, they're all so good at what they do that they all did a great job. It's not their fault. Yeah. But I, maybe it's because I, I know too much about Kerry Washington and her career and her, and her outspokenness. And I just had a hard time believing that she was a super right wing conservative PTA mom. Sure. Yeah. It's kind of a thankless role. It is. She, I mean, she did a great job with it. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. speaking of people who never get their moment in this movie, I think that character, the other thing that- oh, She has a song in the show that I recall. The mom has a song. Did she have a song? She doesn't have a song I don't in think the she does. Yeah, and there's a song in the show that's actually quite good. I wonder why they that would Harry Washington is one of the, really one of the bigger names in this at this point. I wonder why, I, I again, same thing with Nicole Kidman. I was surprised that she was, she was willing to take this role, although she was more present in the movie. Like, she, you know, her character made more appearance. I mean, Nicole Kidman's, I guess, in a lot of scenes too. It just, she isn't given that much to do really. Right. Uh, it was, it was interesting. And I gotta say, one of the reasons that, you know, this specific type of musical theater isn't my thing is like one of the, one of the many tropes in this movie, this one negative, not all of them negative, but this one negative is at the very end of the movie, not, I mean, you know, I, I would say spoiler alert, except, you know, obviously, I, like you can, you, you know, before you start watching this movie, how things are going to go. It's not like yeah. there's a surprise, but, you know, she plays this fairly, you know, like uptight, like you said, right wing uh, PTA president who does not want her daughter to date a, a girl. She doesn't, she doesn't want her daughter to explore that. And you know, by the end, relents and shows up to support her at the prom, which is also like, you know. I mean, very- not even that. She goes most of the movie not knowing that right. her daughter is dating a girl. And then she finds out and it takes about a hot second for her to be like, oh, I love you. I support you. Exactly. <laughs> and of a big flashing musical number. Now all of a sudden we're dancing together and smiling and the entire room is perfectly choreographed. I mean, that makes sense in musical theater. I get it. We talked about that last time in another movie that was like a realistic movie. And then all of a sudden there was a scene where everybody was dancing. And I was like, what the fuck is this? But in this one, at least musical theater, it kind of makes sense. We expect that. And this kind of music, the musical theater, we expect this to happen. But it's just so ridiculous, you know? It's It really is ridiculous. But at the same time, I also didn't hate this movie. I didn't, like, there was nothing about this movie that was causing me any, it's very watchable, you know? It is, it's it's fun. It's fun. Just suspend your disbelief and go enjoy it, for sure. Yeah. The Ryan Murphy machine is, uh, I guess I'm just surprised that this is, you know, that this was something of a passion project. It seems like there's so many others that would be exciting out there. I don't know. It may have been a bit of the underdog thing. I mean, this musical has quite a pedigree. It has a lot of really great people behind it. Um, They executed it really well on Broadway and it just never, this was not a hit on Broadway. This, right. this show struggled to stay open. Um, it stayed open as long as it could. And when it closed, Ryan Murphy picked it up. What's interesting about that is that I think a lot of people had the same reaction to it that Ryan Murphy did. It was very sweet and endearing and they were a champion for it. Those who went to see it were a champion for it. They just couldn't get the people into the theater to watch it. And who knows, maybe that was part of it that he just wanted to like carry the torch mm-hmm. and take, take the show to the greater world. I think um, there was another show um, that opened a little bit before the prom called Head Over Heels. It was the, the Go-Go's music um, yeah, yeah. by Gwyneth Paltrow. I think it had a very similar, like people who saw it loved it following, but they just couldn't keep people in the seats. They couldn't right. get people in. So I think they become passion projects for people who just care about the story. Yeah. 
Fair enough. Yeah, there was probably something in the story that he related to. Yeah, there was something else. Oh, the other thing about this musical, though, is that it's a very New York theater-driven script. There's a lot of inside jokes about the theater community that if you are not kept into that, it's not funny, and you don't know. Like, there's a line about... Andrew Reynolds' character joining the non-union tour of Godspell. I mean, that's funny to New Yorkers who work in theater, right? Performers who understand how like non-union tours work and the like running joke about Godspell. Like these are not, I don't think it's common knowledge to the rest of the world. It could be me, but the whole show is full of that stuff. Like her pulling out her Tony Awards uh, tell me, how many people know what a Tony Award looks like? Right. It's not an Oscar statuette. So it's it's definitely, it definitely had has a particular audience in mind, um, I think, which I think makes it challenging too. Yeah, the, even the stuff about like Meryl's character once being told she was too old to play Ava Perone, you know, like nobody, without even having the word Evita, I don't even know if like your typical- That's the other- That was the other great thing about how, you know, career Broadway performers played these roles. I think it made it more authentic. So you, you keep, you're keeping those sort of inside jokes in, but your cast, it it worked because the cast was a part of that world. So it it feels a little disjointed when you have big movie stars making inside jokes about the theater industry. Not that they haven't worked in theater. Of course they have. Most of them got their start there, especially right. James Porter and Andrew Reynolds. Um, but there's just something about it that's a little disjointed. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I don't know. This, it, it, it's, uh, there, there are things about this movie that, uh, and, this, and this play that just seem outdated in a myriad of ways, actually. Absolutely. I think... Um, I read one review that pointed out, and this is true, when you're making light of the serious divide between conservative middle America and the more liberal entertainment industry or the coasts, today, when that divide is so serious and really ugly, it feels tone deaf. Yeah. This isn't fun. This right. divide that we have isn't fun and you can't make it fun with a musical number. Well, and I think Andrew Reynolds' song is kind of the worst offender. Yeah, bad. It, But see, it's interesting because my take during that, I had the same reaction. I was like, okay, so basically what this movie is saying is if you're from Indiana, fuck you. You know, like it really is yeah. saying you it's are- insulting. Yeah, I mean, like it really is, it, it's not pulling any punches. But at the same time, it, it's hard because we've spent now four years listening to the other side say that about us, right? About the, the, exactly the people that they're talking about here, Meryl Streep and her elites, whatever, you know? Um, so I don't know. I guess I don't so much have a problem with kind of, you know, fighting fire with fire in that regard. I just, the thing that they hate most, if I can speak for, you know, 150 million people or so give or take is being called stupid and that's exactly what this movie is doing you know it's just saying you're stupid and i'm not sure that really allows any that gives anybody the space to change their viewpoint no no it doesn't it's Um, not a it's not a subtle argument that they're making i guess is maybe the way to put it 
No, there's nothing nuanced about this movie. Yeah. Listen, if you love musical theater in its most traditional form and you just want to have some fun, this this movie is it. Like it's it's fun. You will enjoy your time. If you don't like musical theater and especially like super traditional, kitschy, pronounce all your consonants, <laughs> overpronounce all your consonants kind of musical theater, don't watch this movie. It's not for you. Yeah. Like you said, there's a lot of neon. There are a lot of big lights. There's a lot yeah. of purple and pink and bright blue, very bright colors, very, Nothing you know, subtle. Light. Nothing subtle. And, you know, there are moments in this film where it works beautifully. And there are moments where it's just a little off. I think that's maybe my issue with this film is there are things I, you know, I am hardly an expert when it comes to flashy musical theater, but it seems like a couple of changes really could have fixed this movie in big ways. Yeah, I agree. So I don't know. Anyway, shall we move on to let them all talk? I think so. Yeah. Let's it. Let's start with the synopsis of this one. This film is about um, a successful author, Alice. What's her last name? Alice. Actually, I don't know if we ever get her last name, do we? I think we do. It's on her books. Okay. Um, anyway, Alice um, is winning a prestigious fiction award um, to be given her, to her at a ceremony in the UK. And um, she can't fly. And so um, her agent arranges for her to take the Queen Mary across the Atlantic to get to the UK to, t to win this award. And she invites her two oldest friends from college, played by Candace Bergen and Diane Wiest, her nephew, uh, Lucas Hedges, yep, that's it, to go across with her on, on the boat. Um, the agent goes as well. And, you know, hijinks ensue. So it's really, uh, I would say it's, it's sort of an observational comedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It has yeah. a very... And then it's not. Yes. I will say that the first two thirds of the film are an observational comedy about some friends. And then the last third is an entirely different film, which I won't spoil it for anybody. You can watch it. <laughs> yes. Although there are a couple things that I wouldn't mind talking about. So this is, let's maybe do our disclaimer of- Yeah, let's do that. Spoiled, just, you know, pause us and come back after you've watched the movie. Cause I don't want to feel stable. Cause there are a couple of things that are so unique about the turn that this movie takes that I, we should address. Yeah. Uh, but okay, what were your kind of initial, what is your initial response to this film? Oh God, I really loved it. I'm a little confused by it. Um, that, I've only I've only seen it once. I'd like to rewatch it. I know you've watched it twice. Yep. I imagine that would be helpful. I would like to watch it again, knowing what I know now, um, and just sort of take it from a different angle because the film starts out so different from where we end up. Yeah. Uh, with an entirely different tone. And it feels like, I, I feel like we're dealing with an entirely different character. Yeah. Between Meryl Streep at the beginning and Meryl Streep sort of towards the end. I agree. I agree. Yeah. This is a Steven Soderbergh film. She reunited with him very shortly after filming The Laundromat, which, you know, we did an episode on. They basically kind of shot this movie almost in secret. I mean, they, they filmed this movie in something like eight days on, the, on an actual cruise where they were paying customers who didn't really know that this, you know, there were signs, I guess, saying, you know, film, there is a film being made, but nobody really 
went out of their way to explain to the other passengers what was happening. <laughs> it was kind of shot guerrilla style almost. Um, you can tell there's there's strong production value, so it's not like on a handheld camera or anything like that. But right. I don't know how they managed to do that. How Meryl Streep and Candace Bergen and Diane Weiss can just be on a cruise ship and nobody really bothers them. But apparently that's exactly what happened. Uh, so they filmed this, they went to London, you know, they filmed it in like eight days, went to London, shot a couple scenes there, got back on the boat, or may, I don't even know if they got back on the boat to come back. I think they flew home from that. I think they just filmed the whole movie on the way there. Uh, mostly improvised. They had a rough outline. Well, not a rough, they probably had a pretty specific outline, but you know, the dialogue was not written out for them, which in certain scenes is very interesting like her speech in particular i was i was paying attention to that knowing that like when she she gives a speech on board the About ship Bloodland Pugh. yeah that speech it, yeah it, it's basically what how she how they justify the fact that they're allowing this woman on this cruise for free plus two of her friends and her nephew and we find out later her doctor uh you know i was thinking the whole time like this is very convenient that they're just kind of like going over this and then even the her literary agent played by Gemma Chan who just kind of justifies to the I you know I guess if you're working for Random House or Penguin or you know even Simon and Schuster who have like a lot of money and it, she is a big author she's she referenced winning a Pulitzer and I forget the name of the award that she's going to accept I think it's a fictional it award it is um but it's apparently even more prestigious than the Pulitzer. So obviously she's a big deal author, but still the fact that uh, it, it's kind of portrayed as this mix between like J.D. Salinger meets, you know, like in that very elusive, the, the literary agent has to follow her to even find out what it is that she's working on because who knows. I'm not sure that the, I'm, I basically am trying to kind of politely say, I'm not sure why the agent needed to be on the boat. <laughs> I know, right? Well, there's like this, they try to, <laughs> they try to justify it as her like being proactive in her job to try and find out what her new manuscript is about. Yeah. But she doesn't really need to be there. Right. Yeah. Because and she, then she ends up not asking her anyway. Right. Exactly. She doesn't find out anything anyway, really. Yeah. Like she, she's no smarter for having been on that boat than she would have been not going on that trip. Yeah. But that issue aside, I mean, it is nice to have another character to spend some time with. And I think Jim yeah. Chan is good in this movie. It's, it's not that. It's just uh, that's one thing that is kind of interesting about this film. Uh, the tone of, of Meryl's speaking voice is so interesting in this movie. Have you ever seen the Christopher Guest movie For Your Consideration? Yes. Were you getting any Catherine O'Hara vibes yes, from her performance? I haven't even thought about Yeah, you know, when this movie starts, um, you're at a, a lunch with her and Gemma Chan, her agent. But Gemma Chan is, has not been her agent. Her agent, Sonia, has sort of been forced to retire. And she's left with Gemma Chan, this young agent. And she is what I can only describe as insufferable. I thought, if we're going to have this for the whole movie, I'm not sure I'm going to get through it. <laughs> Because she, I mean, she captures that ego mania, that self-importance that comes with intense success over a long period of time so well. 
then I truly disliked her at first. I was like, oh, I don't know if I can handle a whole film of this. She was really good. It's, it, it, yeah, she is a lot to take. And she does tone it down after that first scene quite a bit. She does, she does. And then, yeah, there ends up being so much lovely nuance in it. But but yeah, that first scene, but but also the voice, like she just, I, that's what I thats what I noticed in the preview. And I think I mentioned it to you. I thought I've never heard her sound like that before. Right. And actually it's even pointed out in the, Diane Reese has a line where she says- I laughed so hard. Like that. <laughs> I laughed so hard because I have, um, I have a, a friend acquaintance that I grew up with who came into a lot of money in adulthood and changed their voice oh. very similarly. And so when Diane, we said that I like, I like cried because it's so true. Some people really do like put on an affectation of import and and in their voice to like indicate importance and it's quite shocking <laughs> well it's like, the story it's the story of that tech that elizabeth what's her name the one who defrauded that entire industry yeah elizabeth holmes elizabeth holmes yeah yes. that's what she did they Don't say that's the voice oh, yeah that's crazy yeah, yeah the one of the things that I noticed right off the bat and actually this reminded me of the laundromat in a way because it you know it's been a year or so since I watched it since we did that movie but there there was a a title card right at the beginning where it said let them all talk aka the fall of 2019 yeah what is that what what do we what is the aka about here no I mean maybe they're just trying to give us a time a time frame? Yeah, but why make it AKA? Like that it, it, Like that implies it's like part of the title. Like there could be a colon instead of AKA. It just, it, it, and then right after that, it had uh, Alice. And then when Diane Weiss' character, it says Susan. And then when Candace Bergen's character, it said Roberta. And then there was never any of that the rest of the movie. Oh, yeah. It, like within the first four minutes, there was like four of those. And then never the rest and of the movie. And why was it so important to tell us where they were? Because yeah. they all end up on the cruise ship anyway. Right. It was an establishing scene with each of them. And again, I like the establishing scenes were perfectly fine. I actually thought they each had their unique points. I actually really liked that first scene with Meryl and Gemma Chan. There were some things about it so funny. In particular, you know, when Gemma Chan's character, Karen, comes up with the idea that she should go, instead of fly, she should go on the ship. Meryl's character, Alice, and you know, immediately says, Oh no, I couldn't do that. Could I bring some friends? Like, has this immediate, like, abrupt, could I bring some people? How many would they let me take? And this very, like, how much can I have? How much will they give me? Kind of way. Uh, that scene that Diane Weist has with her son is so funny because she seems like such a normal person. And then she starts talking about how she feels violently angry at her former daughter-in-law there's something about diane weist saying all these things it's in the same later when they're playing when she and candace bergen are playing scrabble and she plays a good card and she just looks at candace bergen and says bow down bitch and it's like diane weist saying that is so unexpected and so funny oh god i have to tell you this is off subject but diane weist came to came to a show i produced in new york mm -hmm. and i was not there <laughs> 
And so I did not get to meet her. This is very sad. <laughs> it was a missed opportunity. <laughs> um, but I, I just, whatever sort of system they put in place or however they chose to do this, and, and however much they outlined these characters, I mean, they just leaned into all things good about Diane Wiest and Candace Bergen for this movie. They, yep. they let them run and exercise their brilliance in a way that made this so worth watching. Uh-huh. Diane Wiest, like soft-spoken, sort of tender, and then she just says the super pointed direct things in that sweet so little voice yeah and she's really like the she's not the conscience of the film necessarily but she's sort of the she's the voice of reason yeah she's the she's the only rational one there yeah absolutely i have to say though a highlight for me is candace bergen from the moment she steps on screen every moment she has is a win yeah she's getting a lot of acclaim for kind of stealing this movie Right out. Costumes. All the French. She's from Dallas. So they dress her accordingly. I don't know a lot of women from Dallas who dress like that. And I know a lot of people from Dallas. But still, I mean, she walks around that cruise ship with the curled blonde hair and the and the button-up shirts with the fringe coming off of them and the longhorn t-shirt she wears. I could be wrong, but I I think there's a chance they were wearing their own clothes. Are you serious? If that was Candace Bergen's idea of what a woman from Dallas would wear, then I'm down with it. And I embrace it wholeheartedly. Yeah, I I don't, I guess I don't, I'm not finding that. So don't take my word on that. It might've been one of the things that they mentioned in one of the promo. I watched, like I said, it's several different things. Uh, The three of them all did a joint interview with, I think CBS Saturday or Sunday morning. One of those. Okay. uh, and I think it was brought up there, maybe. I could be wrong, though. Yeah, this is so charming. And you know who else I really loved? Was the was the man who played um, Kelvin, the, the mystery author? Yeah. I loved him. I don't know who he is. Do you? I, you know, it's funny because, again, in several reviews that I read about this, everybody was, was talking about how good he was. And I don't think he's an actor. I think he is, he's like a literary person of some kind let me look up i don't think he's an actor though i just thought he was phenomenal there was a tenderness about him and an ease yeah that's what that there have been a lot of reviews that have kind of complimented him in that same way uh let's see kevin kranz david l grant yeah he has uh three acting credits but the other two were tv an episode of the boston and the other one is a girlfriend experience i think he's I think he's uh, a director. Oh, he, got it. He, he directed an Al Pacino movie in 2002 called People I Know. He's directed episodes of Sex in the City. He's a uh, writer too. Yeah. So and, anyway, he's not primarily an actor. And I think that's one of the things that people are saying is he is very kind of convincing in this realm. He, he kind of wears this persona of this kind of uh, Dean Koontz, James Patterson kind of like, you know, you can find a thousand copies of their books and he churns them out. That's one of the many great scenes is uh, he's talking to this group of women and Meryl, who's playing this very, you know, again, pretentious artiste of a writer who, you know, slaves over her work for years and years. She asks 
him, how long does it take you to write a book? And he says, he, he kind of describes his process and he says basically three to four months. And she says, oh, that's longer than I would have thought. It's so <laughs> rude. It's so rude. It's so rude. <laughs> and I love how when they first realize who he is and they're all like, oh, he, we read all of his books and they're so excited about it. She's so offended. Yeah. You could, and I think I think it's Candace Bergen makes a joke, right, about going over and talking to him. We should really like explain a few more things. Although again, I'm sure people have watched this film. The kind of runner with her character is she is just obsessed with meeting a wealthy guy. She doesn't care about anything else except if he has money. She's I think tired of working. She's tired of she just wants yeah. somebody to take care of her. Well, and as backstory, you find out that 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 Meryl Streep's first like hit book, her most successful book, was supposedly based on Candace Bergen character's life and some secrets that she had told Meryl Streep in private as her friend that she then put into fiction. And her husband divorced her over it, over the book. And so she's been sort of left financially ruined and having to work and sell lingerie and you know it's 30 years later and Meryl Streep all of a sudden invites her to go on this cruise and she thinks I'm gonna confront her so she's really there to confront Meryl Streep and then also find herself a rich husband because she's tired of selling lingerie (laughs) it's funny it's I mean, even the way they kind of establish that is the first time that she's on the ship, really, is she goes to the bar by herself. There's this guy who's who's bragging to her about how he managed to sell some shoelaces to somebody else on the cruise. And even her response is just saying, wow, you're turning a profit on the ship. And she says, so how much money is that? And he goes, oh, I just met you. You're a stranger. And she goes, no, tell me. I want to know. Like, I, can, I can't do it justice. But her, like, you're going to tell then, me how much money you sold these for. Did you notice the business card later when she gives it to the nephew? She gives it to Lucas Hedges to, to, to do internet sleuthing on him to see if he has a criminal background of any kind. And she goes, basically, I want to know if I'm going to survive. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It's funny. She, yeah, she is just willing to date anybody who has some money at this point. And then kind of sadly, I mean, this is jumping, but when she and Meryl's character do finally kind of have it out, she basically just puts it to her and says, I will tell you, you know, because Meryl's character is struggling to write a sequel and Candace Bergen is just, you know, telling Diane Weiss the entire time. That's why we're here is because she wants to mine my life for more information and uh, she basically says to, to Meryl's character, I will tell you everything. I want 30% of the profits and just kind of is cold to her about it and says, this is the deal. I will give you everything, but I want money this time. And it's really kind of a turning point for their relationship, although something happens that they basically no longer have a relationship after that. But Meryl's character gets upset and says, oh, this isn't about love. This is about money. This isn't about anything except money, really. It's a pretty powerful moment. Yeah. And then, again, stop listening right now if you don't want to hear anything else. Because I think we should talk about the end. Yeah, I think so, too. And the about face we do. So the way, first of all, she passes away in the night. 
before she wins the award, after she's had this conversation with Candace Bergen. And so the last half of the film was last third, really. Not even, fourth, last fourth of the film. Yeah. Pretty brief. Are, you know, them sort of dealing with the aftermath of her passing in the UK and, you know, trying to get home and honoring her memory. And I thought it was really interesting the way they set up the thing with the doctor. I did too. Like, because he was reading the Odyssey, it almost felt like he was some sort of, even, not a Greek chorus, but you know what I mean? Like, he seemed to have some sort of otherworldly quality to him throughout the film because he never speaks. You know she's interacting with this man because you see him leaving her hotel room. You don't know who he is. He never really speaks. He doesn't have any dialogue. He makes he says one thing about how Kelvin Krantz's book is is, is compelling. Yeah. Um so I was I was surprised. I was surprised to find out who he was. I was definitely taken by surprise. I think I was surprised by the level of exposition he was required to give because nothing else was set up. Right. <laughs> yeah, what did you think about that? Did you did you like the change? Did you like the sort of surprise? Um I don't know. I mean, I'm with you. I it is kind of like this sharp left turn and it, there is a part of you that's like did all this really need to be secretive? But I guess in a way it did. You know, there's the way the film is structured, it kind of did need to be a surprise. You know, that she basically, you know, the, the fact that she dies, if, if, that, if that part wasn't part of the film, then it wouldn't matter so much. But if you don't want to give that away, or at least like kind of give some subtle hints about it, you, you don't even want to think about the fact that she has to have a doctor traveling with her, which is really what this is about. Um, and so the fact that she has to have this doctor on board would maybe kind of telegraph that something else is not right here. You do kind of wonder who is this guy? Why do they keep showing this guy? And yet we don't know who he is. And we know we see several other people without Meryl, Meryl's character. So there's no reason we couldn't have a scene with just this guy. I think the other thing too for me is that uh, the end of the film really seems to be about Lucas Hedges, her nephew. What's his character's name? His, uh, Tyler. Thank you. T Tyler's transformation, right? It was almost a coming of age and that he, he decides to go with his aunt, who has been, I think, a stabilizing presence for him in his life. You kind of find out along the way that his parents aren't great. You know, he wants to spend time with these ladies to kind of, I don't know, learn something about life. And you see him observe quite a bit. I think, I think for me, what's, what's a little jolting is that the film at the end is claiming to have more heart than it did at the beginning. And it wasn't, it's not quite earned because it's so, it's so observational. It's so Soderbergh, right? That like, that sort of like stand back and observe people in their natural habitat kind of approach to filmmaking. And that comes through really in everything about the film, including the fact that you see random shots of the, the, the cruise ship crew doing random tasks as like intercuts that have nothing to do with the film. It's very observational. And then I feel like it tries to be more than that and have some sort of message, which I'm not angry at. I'm just not sure it was set up to be that. Which is kind of the issue you had with the laundromat too, right? Her big speech at the end. Yes, yes, yeah. It's not earned. 
There's something not earned about it. Part of it too is Lucas Hedges, who I think is good, but there's something, I don't know, he, I, I think it's the character more so than it is him. He's, he's so naive and so... So naive and some of the things he says are really embarrassing. Yeah, well, that's it. Like he plays, see, he's been in enough stuff now. I don't know how old he is. I don't know if he's like our age or if he's, you know, 10 years young. No, he's younger. in his 20s. Okay. He's been in so much stuff though now that like buying him as this like 20 year old, which is kind of how he's portrayed. Who's yeah. trying Super to- Super naive and young. He's so naive, yeah, and and you know he's trying to trying to land Meryl's agent, who is in her mid to late thirties. She's what thirty six or thirty seven or thirty eight. Yeah. She says something like that, and it's just kind of yeah, embarrassing is a good word for it. Like that's that's kind of who he is, and he's just you you wonder like why is he hanging out? There are some good jokes about it. Uh, you know, uh, Meryl says, "Oh, he's on a date with an older woman," and kind of spurring her says what is she in her 80s like you know hanging <laughs> out with all these women in, in their 60s on this boat um you know why he's there in the first place outside of the fact that you know for him it's a free cruise i guess you know that probably is enough of a reason to get him on a boat but um he i don't know maybe that character needed a little bit more fleshing out as to like what his motivations were besides i think know, he needed a little bit more maturity yeah yeah. But because, you know, he's got that initial scene with his friends where he explains why he's going, which is embarrassing. Yeah. And then he wanders around the ship with a backpack on and his ball cap on like like he's six. And he, he has that conversation with Diane Weist where he's like, you're the last generation to like understand what it is to be human without technology, which is embarrassing because, of course, they've experienced technology and yeah, so there's, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's an immaturity there. And also a pretentiousness there that does exist yes. in, in that age group. I mean, that's like when you, I mean, we were like that when we were 20 years old too, but that's sort of like, you think you know everything, you really know nothing and that you're talking as if like, you know, it, 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 it's universal, but that whole like, everything is so big, you know, and it's, it's just kind of wild and Diane Weiss does such a nice job of kind of like cutting him down to size in that scene in the most polite way of being like you were ridiculous you know yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I did really like this movie though and you are right what you were saying kind of earlier going back to one of the things you said when you were first talking about this movie is the second viewing is is even better than the first this is one of those movies that you definitely catch things that I missed in the first time through for one reason or another. Okay. Yeah. I'm definitely going to go rewatch it. I think my parents would enjoy it. So I'm going to, I'm going to make them watch it. Yeah. There's nothing about this one that is uh, <laughs> offensive in any, like to, it's not like the, it's not like uh, the laundromat was where it was very, you know, <laughs> right. Very pointed kind of like we were just talking about Rob. There's nothing in this that anybody is going to be offended by, I don't think. Um, it's it's just a matter of whether or not people are particularly interested in it, too. I read some, before the movie came out, I read some really good reviews, really positive reviews, and then one or two really negative reviews of this one. And I wasn't sure where to, where to fit, but I, I like this one quite a bit. I do, too. I don't think I could possibly give it a negative review, even even with its sort of 
180 degree turn, it still works. It's not as un- unearned as I as I claim as we're discussing about it, only because the way they wrap up the film mm-hmm. is quite nice because things just move on. It's like, oh, your main character is dead. Um, and then things just march on almost as if she was still there or was never there to begin with. Right. And and then I think what what ties that all together quite beautifully is the stuff about Blodwin Pugh. It really does tie the whole thing together quite nicely in terms of how voices reach you, um, yeah. you know, across time and yeah, yeah. And it's it's a really interesting kind of thing that happens at at the end because after Meryl's character dies, Candace Bergen's character steals her like diary or not a diary, but like a, a very a journal of like notes. Right. Her very unpolished kind of rough draft of whatever idea notebook maybe. And basically tries to sell it to Karen, the her her literary agent. And Karen is like, I don't know what we would do with this. And you know, she's just grasping at straws, trying to like make a buck on this thing. And you know well, I love it how that they imply that Roberta can write the book about her next 30 years and she'd definitely take a look at that. Right. Right. She's right back selling lingerie. Like you said, as if she had never gone on the trip, but on the flip side of that, then you have Susan Diane Weiss character who is now working with. Kelvin Krantz. Kelvin Krantz, um, which I assumed also was, you know, like a, they don't really hint strongly at this, but I assume maybe a romantic or like future romantic pairing between the two of them so things kind of work out for her and again not for Candace Bergen's character she just kind of just like cannot catch a break you know (laughs) so great (laughs) uh yeah I I highly recommend this one yeah it feels like a French film you know like really yeah it's not, not that much happens in this movie really and you know the music, the music interludes that sort of 1960s. <laughs> it feels like a Neil Simon. It feels like Barefoot in the Park. It's like yeah, yeah, very, very French. You're correct. Yeah, it, it definitely had that feeling. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to say about either of these films? Yeah, I think they make a really interesting back-to-back watch, especially if you're a Meryl Streep fan, because they are just polar opposite performances. And and really, even with everything I had to say about the prom, it's still a powerhouse performance. She's great. She's good in it. Yeah, would you, I was just gonna ask if she does manage to, which I think she's on the outside, but you know, you never know. If she managed to, I, she, is uni- she is a unanimous choice on that same website I was referencing earlier to get a nomination for a Golden Globe, but that's because there are different categories there. there there's there's right. comedy, so. I think you could you could feel very confident that she will get a Golden Globe nomination for the prom. Uh, yeah. Would you be ups- Would you feel like it was undeserved if she got a nomination for an Oscar too? Um, you know what? I don't think an Oscar nomination for Meryl Streep is ever undeserved. <laughs> um, do I think that it should possibly go to somebody else? Yeah, I think she was having a, a lot of fun on the prom. And she was excellent in it. Would I give her an Oscar nomination for Let Them All Talk in a heartbeat? Give it, give it, give it to her for that. Interesting. 
Interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I loved her and let them all talk. Yeah. I don't think there's much of a chance of that happening, but I, I'm, I'm with you. And that yeah. seems like in an ordinary year, it's kind of like the year that uh, it's complicated. And Julie and Julia, I think both came out the same year and she was nominated for Julie and Julia. I, I might be remembering this wrong, but I, because Julie and Julia is such a great performance, but I remember some, reading some article where somebody was like, it's complicated is the movie that she's so good in. You know, like we just have different yeah. uh, uh, kind of feelings about her performances. And these are two very, very different performances for sure. Yeah. The, the IMDb rankings for each of these are quite low in her, in her canon. So uh, the prom is at a 6.2 which ties it with Lions for Lambs and Prime. So it's like definitely bottom half, probably even bottom quarter. It's quite low. It's under things like The Laundromat, uh, Iron Lady, It's Complicated Evening, Falling in Love. It's, it's under basically everything except for uh, Into the Woods and Ricky and the Flash and She Devil. <laughs> um, yeah. This one, Let Them All Talk, is actually even lower. It's at a 6.1, which ties it with Before and After, heartburn and still of the night what yeah that is bonkers this is a better movie than still of the night and before and after uh, well it's better than heartburn too i mean like i really think it's yeah. better than all of those movies and actually i would say the prom is probably better than each of the movies in its category too or the yeah. ones that it's tied with i will say you know these movies came out a week ago and so sometimes it just takes some time before it kind of levels off you'll have Again, in the era of Trump, there are a lot of people who just don't like Meryl Streep because Donald Trump doesn't like Meryl Streep. So you'll have that contingent who have just decided anything she's in is awful. Um, And then you have people who love her a whole lot who will raise it. Like, you know, it can go in either direction. Um, But I do think the Trump thing is still a factor in her right now. But... Um, there have been interesting articles too about uh, her singing performance in this and how uh, I've, I've seen a few articles kind of ranking her various musical performances and saying this is, you know, kind of in the middle to the middle top. Really? Mm-hmm. God, I don't think, I just feel like she's never sounded better. Yeah, she's pretty good in this. Yeah, By I've the way. I always liked her voice too. Like I, she's always been strong. I don't think I've said anything critical about uh, Let Them All Talk, with the exception of not really getting the title cards, which is kind of meaningless in the whole scheme of things. I just don't understand what that was supposed to mean. That's not really a criticism. I do have a tiny bone to pick with Let Them All Talk, which is that I'm not sure, as much as I love her singing, I'm not sure we needed the voiceover of her singing that song. Agreed. Agreed. That seemed very out of character. Seemed out of character. And then the first thing I thought was, really, in this too? (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't think that's the response I was supposed to have. <laughs> yeah. So her character sings the Ash Grove, which is a great song. I love that melody. I love the melody of that song. And it's in the voiceover after she's died. And it just kind of shows them like walking off the ship, walking into the hotel. Maybe it shows them walking to the grave. I don't remember. Um, but I think it was unnecessarily sentimental too. Yeah. It's just kind of an odd choice. Yeah. But, and you know, it's, there's another thing that I noticed in that specific scene. <laughs> now I'm kind of, I guess a few things, although I did, I don't think this is a criticism. I just thought it was interesting 
that this happened in one specific scene and never again that I remember. There's the scene where after she dies, the three of them are kind of in her room and they're just kind of like looking around. That's when Candace Bergen takes her a journal and like sticks it up her shirt. Um, and there is dialogue that is voiceover that takes place later. And we eventually see this scene like, you know, a minute and a half afterwards, we catch up to them. But it's like the dialogue of the scene starts a minute or 30 seconds before the actual scene does where we see them. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not being particularly articulate. No, I didn't notice. Not maybe because I was not looking at the screen at the, <laughs> the time it happened. So I'll rewatch and look for it. There was, there's a scene where you hear them, they're talking about, well, should we rebook our tickets home now? Yes, yeah. And he's like, no, we need to go to Bloodman Pugh's grave. We need to, it feels weird to go home without following through. Yeah, yeah. Right. Half the, half of that dialogue takes place in a scene in which they're just in the room. It appears silent with Meryl's body and none of, none of their lips are moving. They're not talking. And then it cuts to them sitting somewhere and talking like that. Again, it's just an inconsistency. It's not a problem so much, but it's just like, yeah, they don't do it at any other point in the film. Right. Yeah. 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 It's, I think it was Soderbergh. I was talking earlier about Fincher and how like meticulous he is. And I think he was the counterpoint. Uh, I think it was one of those reviews that I sent to you, wasn't it? Where they were talking about how Soderbergh's style and Fincher's styles are so opposite each other and talking about how Soderbergh is just like anything kind of, anything goes basically. Anything goes. Yeah. And this is, sometimes it's like, you know, that's probably too far in certain points. And then what Fincher does is too far in a different direction. And it's like, these two are both geniuses in a way, but they need to like work together and figure out each of their own shit. Cause it's just, yeah. the choice make her bonkers sometimes. I have a, you know, as sort of your regular lay person, I have a difficult time with the level of indulgence required for that kind of genius mm -hmm. it's like i i get that you are so meticulous and that you want to capture that shadow but i feel like <laughs> brilliance can be achieved without putting everybody around you through this <laughs> well and in particular i mean this is a very much a tangent but in particular for a movie like mank because it's just, I mean, it's in black and white anyway. And it's just, it's got these very old school approaches where, you know, they're like the old school things where it looks like the film is grainy, where he'll do this like, you know, sudden cut across. And I'm sure it's all very intentional, but it's sort of like, I was talking to somebody the other day about the only reference point I have is like Neil Young as a musician. He is obsessed with what is called lossless audio. So like, you know, you and I, when we get a song, it's in MP3 format, right? And we put it on our phones and that's how we listen to music for the most part. Neil Young is, he wants everybody to buy his music in these like huge formats that have like supreme quality sound and only be played through like premier speakers basically. But then he'll record these records. Like he did this record five or six years ago where he recorded it in an old, he found this old like uh, payphone booth and he recorded an album inside it that Jack White produced and it sounds horrible. So we're listening to high quality versions <laughs> of terrible sounding songs. <laughs> I just don't understand. And it's kind of a 
Fincher is doing. You know what I mean? Like Mank, it takes away, like there are certain movies where those technical skills would be perfectly suited for it. But Mank, we don't need that. What you're doing, if you're asking Amanda Seyfried and Gary Oldman and Lily Collins to run a hundred versions of this scene is driving them bonkers. And it's the same thing. You would Exhausting them. Yeah. Yeah. So. It feels unnecessary. Yeah. I kind of like the eight day on a cruise ship. Let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> That's my kind of filmmaking. If it means a random shot of the, of the cruise ship crew and some random voiceovers, I'm like, good, let's do this. <laughs> there was a scene, it showed like them doing laundry or something. Yes. And I was like, oh, what's going to happen with the laundry guys? <laughs> no, nothing happens with the laundry guys. <laughs> I do love it when she wanders into the back, into the crew area. And yeah. the lady stops her. She's like, you're not insured. And I was like, oh, she's not. <laughs> I went into lawyer mode. I was like, you got to get her out of there. Actually, that's, that's the first thing I thought, too, was that's not a good thing to say to somebody. Because if Meryl was... The kind of person who is, if, if Meryl was Candace Bergen, what Candace Bergen would have done is made sure she fell down so she could sue, you know? Totally. Slip and fall. You are tipping her off that, like, uh. get in trouble for her being here. <laughs> yeah, that was one of those scenes that felt, like, improvised because... Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Well, these were fun ones to talk about. Totally. I hope you hard on either of them because I, I enjoyed both of them in very different ways but um, I don't know if I'm ready to rank these two yet how are you feeling not either I, I I'm gonna rewatch let them all talk I probably will rewatch the prom as well I need to give it a second viewing it's kind of like having read a novel before you watch a movie it's not always the best plan I'd mm -hmm. like to rewatch the prom now that I've gotten the first viewing out of my system compared it to the stage show. And now I need to let that go and rewatch. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I think maybe whenever our next episode is, we'll maybe do our rankings. Because yeah. I just, it's too kind of fresh. Um, and these are two very, very different movies that we watched back to back. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> need to kind of separate them. Um, so with that being said, let's move on to our other segments. Would you like to start with movies we wish Meryl was in or Six Degrees? Um, let's do movies we wish Meryl was in, even though I don't have one. Okay, I'll do one. Yeah. Uh, I did, re I, I mean, this is not maybe a great one, but uh, I recently watched, it's one of these movies that is not typically seen as a particularly good movie, although I don't think it's perceived as a bad movie either. Um, uh, but it's one that I can watch every, like once a year or so and enjoy the hell out of and then completely forget about it until I watch it again the next year. Uh, a movie called Double Jeopardy with Ashley Judd and Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. I love Double Jeopardy. It's just such a watchable, cheap thriller. It totally is. It's not a, it's not a John Grisham adaptation, but feels like a John Grisham adaptation. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Maddie. Maddie, yep. <laughs> would would reunite her and Tom, Tommy Lee Jones in a much more fun experience than they've had in other movies. Yep, yep. That would um, be great. There's no reason that this movie needed. To, I mean, actually, Ashley Judd is really good in this movie. Actually, I don't know that I've ever enjoyed Ashley Judd more than this movie. Although there are a couple, there are a couple moments um, that are a bit over the top. 
in particular in her courtroom scene, you have to believe me, you know, she, <laughs> but uh, outside of that, it's just a fun movie. It's a, it's about a woman who is happily married and uh, her husband fakes his own death. And uh, so she's, she goes to jail for having killed him, even though she didn't, he is alive and he has faked his own death. And uh when she gets out or actually while she's in jail, somebody informs her that all she has to do is track him down and she can legally kill him in front of anybody and they cannot, you know, try her Can't a second. tried twice. Yeah. So because she has been convicted already of killing this person who's alive, she can kind of have a lot of fun uh, <laughs> out. So uh, there, are, it's one of those movies where you just want to like shake that character and go, there are ways to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish, yeah. but you're being really dumb about this. <laughs> like you need to be smarter and better, but at the same time, she's motivated and she, she gets it done. I just realized it's pretty similar in plot to The Fugitive. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He basically, Tommy Lee Jones is basically playing that same character. He's done yeah. that in like five movies. It is one of his greatest characters. That and Captain Call from Lonesome Dove. I mean, that's Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. So I think that would be a really fun one. I just really like that movie. Like I said, it's just a super easy watch and you can forget about it. It's fluff, it's popcorn and you'll yeah. have a great time watching it and then it's gone and you'll watch it again down the line. So yeah, yeah. that's my I love it. I like that pick a lot. Yeah. You didn't think of it while I was talking, did you? Um, no. Okay. That's right. Let's go on to six degrees. Our person was, of all people, Lizzie Kaplan. Can you connect to Lizzie Kaplan to Meryl Streep? Oh, I can, but through TV. Does TV count? Sure. Why not? No, go for it. Well, she was in True Blood with Alexander Skarsgård. Ah. And I... I, I mean, that's kind of a stretch because he's dead by the time she get he gets on, she gets on Big Little Lies, but, you know, she still plays his mom, so. He's, he's in that season. He's in flashbacks, yeah. Yeah, there you go. I think that works. I think that yeah. works. I think it's especially helped. I get the TV thing, but the Merrill Project is also TV. The, oh. the Big Little Lies is also TV. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's all TV. <laughs> So if you were connecting TV to movie or something, that would be you know one thing. But TV to TV, there's no reason that doesn't work. Excellent. Yeah. How about you? Um, I, you know what? I didn't spend a ton of time thinking or certainly looking this one up. The first one that I, I have two that I can think of uh, without trying too hard. One is uh, Mean Girls with Lindsay Lohan, who is in oh, Carrie Home Companion. There you go. I was uh, wondering if she was connected to, has Meryl Streep been anything with Michael Sheen? I, I thought of that connection too because of Master uh, Masters of Sex, but and not no, not that I know of. Yeah, uh, Elizabeth me, probably hasn't. No, it's not Elizabeth Debicki in in Masters of Sex, is it? Uh, it might be. That sounds right. Um, mean Girls also has an Amanda Seyfried connection. Mama okay. Mia. I feel like there's probably more connections in that. I can't believe Tina Fey and Meryl Streep haven't worked together, but I don't think they have. Um, so that would be that there are a couple connections anyway to yeah. me. Um, I think they were going to be in a movie at one point there was, they were going to be like, uh, I remember reading something about, they were going to be in jail together and then break out or something. There was some sort of mother daughter jail, jail breakout comedy thing. 
Uh, the other one that I thought of was uh, the magician one. Now you can see me too. What is now that? Now you see me. Now you see me too. I, Woody Harrelson's in that. He was also in a Prairie Home Companion. So it's all Prairie Home Companion related. <laughs> I, I, I saw that and I don't remember anything about it except Meryl Streep at a microphone. Do you remember her and Lily Tomlin? No. I mean, I remember that they're in it, but I don't remember any scenes from it. Did it, it came out, were we in college? Yeah, it came out the same year, I think it was 2000. Yeah. It was the same year Devil Wears Prada came out. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I saw it and I remember loving it in, in all its weirdness, but I, I don't remember anything about it. So I'm looking forward to revisiting that one at some point. Yeah, I will have some things to say because uh, that's Garrison Keeler and we used to be neighbors. With him. <laughs> so, oh, did you really? I, I mean, not literally next door, but he was in our yeah. neighborhood. For he got in trouble, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're going to have things to say. Anyway, so uh, those are connections that I could think of. I'm sure there are more, but uh, that's what I could think of. Uh, who is our next person you thought of? Jamie Dornan, because he's okay. in Wild Mountain Time and it was yeah first one who came to mind. Yeah, that sounds good. So if you want to play with us, Meryl Street Podcast at gmail.com. Um, okay, so our next movie we think is... Suffragette. Suffragette, which is going to be an interesting one to talk about. I I've saw that when it first came out and I haven't seen it since. So uh, I've never seen it. Oh, it's good. And Carrie yeah. Mulligan, that would be good Oscar, you know, relating yeah. Carrie Mulligan because she's probably going to get a noun this year as well. Um, cool. Well, thanks for spending the time with us, everybody. And we'll, we'll be back soon. Bye, everybody. And happy holidays. That's all.